Hello guys, welcome to Agave Tales, the show about Agave. My name is Ben and today we have with Gianluca. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, thank you. How are you today, you guys? Yeah, it's been a long day, but nice yeah. finishing it with a little drink with my friend Ben. Yeah, th thank you for that. So, we what are we drinking now? So, you obviously have come to the Bacardi office uh, in Victoria. Thank you for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure, man. Uh, you're always welcome. And we have a little piedra old fashioned. So, extra añejo tequila, four years old, um, with a little bit of ango and orange bitters, uh, just a touch of agave. So, delicious. It is delicious. Amazing. So today we're going to obviously talk about Agave and a little bit about what you've been doing in London, what we've been doing for the brand, um, about all that. But first, we're going to start with some quick fire questions. Is so, this all right with you? Absolutely. Amazing. What would be your favorite underrated cocktail? Uh, my favorite underrated cocktail, it's a Stinger. A Stinger? Yeah. What is it? It's cognac and mint liqueur, creme de menthe. Oh, that sounds, yeah. that sounds dangerous. Uh, it's my favorite underrated drink. Oh, really? I never tried it. Try it. Okay, I will. Um, what, what was your last country visited? Ireland. Ireland, nice. What would you pick between ceviche or cui? Ceviche. Uh, your fav favorite movie? Uh, I've got a lot, but probably The Godfather Part 2. Oh, nice. A classic. Mm. Nice. <laughs> um, and then if you had a, if you have to have an animal on top of your bus, what would it be? A guinea pig. A guinea pig. Yeah. <laughs> My guinea pig. Do you have a guinea pig? Yeah, his name is Enrique. 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 Nice. Okay, so Gianluca, you landed in London in 2015, am I right? That's right, you've done your research. Yes, I did. Stalker. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, I don't know, you're LinkedIn. <laughs> so, um, you started as a bartender at the Blue's Kitchen. That's right. Then for the Long Dot Cocky Club for a few years. Yeah. And then finally at the world-famous Swift Bar in Seoul? Yeah, yeah. So I spent a year in the London Cocktail Club, uh, which was great to learn and, and, and network with people, most mm -hmm. importantly. And then a good old friend of mine, um, recently, less than a year before that, he opened Swift with obviously Bobby and Mia and the rest of the team. And then he, they needed a, a new bartender and... I oh, so you were part of like almost the, the, the opening team? Not or? really. I joined like a year after oh, the year opening after, team, right. but it was definitely the first days, first bar. It was great. It was a, spent just under two years at Swift, so it was great. Nice. And um, while your time in uh, well, in Swift and the other bars, well, actually, I'll start with the very beginning. You're from Peru, right? Yes. Yeah. And I was born and raised in Lima, between Lima, Peru and Santiago in Chile. Okay. But yeah, I'm Peruvian. And then you came straight to London. Yeah, I came to London in 2015 uh, to study. Great. Uh, I took a gap year and never ended up going back to uni, mm -hmm. but definitely discovered a really cool industry. Oh, so you you discovered like uh, hospitality, like being a bartender, and you like you fell in love with it. Yeah, Is yeah. I mean, I had a little bit of hospitality experience, like when I was a student back home, um, but never really a full time thing. Uh, I was starting to become an actor. I was studying drama and I actually did work as an actor oh, wow. for a little bit. And then when I moved to London, obviously I needed to work in order to pay bills, etc. So I got my job, myself a job in a bar in Camden Town. And then I ended up going to LCC like a year and a half later. Uh, but by that point, I've already decided to focus purely on the drinks industry. Coming to London compared to where I'm from, it really showed me that the drinks industry was a really well-established mm -hmm. institution here rather than a job that you did just 
for this because you needed to have a job, which is something that in Latin America is starting to change now. The 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 drinks industry is becoming yeah, we can see. much lo- more appreciated. There's a lot of nice bars now, like yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But significantly, it wasn't as advanced as 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 the UK or Europe. So coming here opened my eyes and being like, wow, this I can actually do a living out of this and live comfortably and live well. Um, and then that led to another thing, and then to just constantly trying to become the best as I can and improving. Constantly right. improving and growing. Any good bar in uh, Peru that you would recommend now? Oh, yeah, Spe- yeah, Especially Agave, Agave Forward? Yeah, I mean, cocktail bars in Peru are growing. Uh, you've got two that are kind of like globally renowned now, but there's a few new ones that mm-hmm. are starting to pop. Um, I'll say definitely there's one called uh, Carnaval, which has been in the 50 best. Then there's one called Lady B, which is relatively new, just maybe two years old, which just made it to like the one to watch. Nice. Um, there's the, there's a couple one that are really cool, which is called Sastreria Martinez. Uh, there's one called Bijou, which is really cool. Then there's another one called, well, there's a lot of restaurant bars that are really good. Right. Like Rafael, um, Bottega Dasso, like a lot of like restaurants that have really good bars. But then you have the classic Peruvian taverns, right? Which are hopefully going to be alive and present forever. Uh, because if they disappear, it's mm. going to be a sad day. But yeah. like young people don't really go to taverns that much. It's not like saying young people in the UK go into pubs. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, the Peruvian tavern is like your Mexican cantina kind of stuff. Right. It's roots, it's old school, it's uh, rustic, it's simple, basic, right? So a lot of young generations, especially like Generation Z and, you know, people who were born after 2002, they want to go to like cool clubs and pubs and bars, not pubs, like bars and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Long live the Peruvian tavern. So, but it's definitely they're changing towards something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And but has, it's growing. And Latin America is, in yeah. my opinion, a huge pioneer of cocktails and good cocktail bars nowadays. Nice. Compared to 10 years ago, even. And what, how's, the, how's the agave scene in the land of Pisco? And uh, Well, I mean, do you mean consum- consumption of agave yeah, spirits um, or production? Uh, what well, you think production as well? Very, very small, but there's a couple of really cool producers in the Andes that are using some native species of agave. Uh, there's one called Acara, which is, uh, based in Peru and it's really, really cool. Like I've tried a couple of their, their expressions. I think they have like three different oh, wow, okay. bottlings. Uh, yeah, but it's like nothing, not even near compared to the size of the tequila or the mezcal industry. Yeah, fair. But it's interesting that you can find agave spirits like from everywhere. Oh yeah, I mean, if you think about agave itself, you have over like two hundred and ninety different species. Yeah, most of those species are native to like North America, especially like Southern American states. Obviously, all of the Mexican country, Central America, but it can go all the way down to the South American Andes. Like if you see, if you research the real definition of agave, it's a plant that is native to parts of North America, Central America, and South American Andes. So. Yeah, you can grow. Well, you can find, yeah, you can find some as well now in um, Australia or South Africa. South Africa, yeah. Yeah. Even I think I was talking with I think Simon from Los Altos, and he said that he even found a guy that is growing agave in Portugal. Yeah, yeah. It's really niche, but yeah, I, th- I yeah. thought it was really interesting. I yeah. was really, really intrigued when I went to Croatia a couple of years ago, and there was a lot of agave, especially in like the south. In the coast of Croatia, Dubrovnik, that area, there was a lot of agave growing there. The thing with agave is that if it finds the right conditions, it's really, really 
uh, resilient. It can yeah. grow easily anywhere and it can live comfortably anywhere. Agave, generally speaking, depending on the variety, it needs very, very little water to survive. Uh, and that is very interesting. And a lot of agave during times of colony were, was used as animal food for cattle and, and different types of, of animals. So agave was transported across the world. And that's mm. how agave ends up landing in South Africa, in Australia, yeah. Eastern Europe, and so on, right? So that's how it ended up traveling across the world. Think about grapes, but the other way around, really. Rather than coming Great. from okay, Europe yeah, into yeah. South America or Latin America, it went from Latin America into the rest of the world. Like sort of a new world and old world, but Correct. reverse. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, let's go back uh, to London. So why your time in London before, let's say, probably yeah, before Swift, I guess, you also started to compete into a few cocktail competitions, right? Oh, absolutely. I you loved did, it. You did uh, Tio Pepe, you did Bacardi, you did Talisca. Wow, no, right. how do you know all of this? Mate, your LinkedIn is like the perfect... Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, yeah, everything was in there. I, I, didn't always know liked, I always really enjoyed performing. I enjoyed... Um, I went to drama school, you know, I was an actor. I, I it am, does make way, sense a now, performer. Yeah. And I love talking in front of people. And that's what I think my job nowadays suits me. It's because I love talking in front of big, big crowds and big groups of people and presenting. So when I discovered what cocktail competitions were, I was fascinated because I, th I thought they were a really good platform to get your name out there, to showcase the industry, the drinks that you could do, but also the personality that you have. Like at the end of the day, cocktails competi cocktail competitions is not only about the drink. It's about you on the stage, you presenting. So yeah, when I was in LCC, I, I got pushed by, by the training team at the time to do a lot of cocktail comps. So I did a few internal ones and then, you know, I did Talisker. I did a bunch of other small cocktail competitions. Um, but then when I was in Swift, I learned something very, very different, which was, you know, a sense of elegance that was I'm not saying it was impressive in LCC, but LCC is all about party, high volume, speed, free pouring. Yeah. And I will never forget in one of my first cocktail competitions, they told me never free pour. And I free poured. And I was like, yeah, but that's all I know. No one ever told me don't free pour in a cocktail comp. And since that day, I've, I never, I've never, I never did it again. But since that day, when I see people doing it, I'm like, has anyone ever told you not to free pour in a cocktail comp? No fine then you haven't done you haven't made a mistake just don't do it again right yeah uh and then yeah man i mean to be honest i never really succeeded in any cocktail comp i did tio pepe twice and i was second <laughs> two years in though. a row two years in a row it's which was great. it was not bad it wasn't bad at all um but even in patron perfectionist when i did it in 2018 i It was a very interesting story because I actually got the email saying, congratulations, you've made it to your regional final. It's on whatever date. And I was like, no, shit. It's my, that's like the day after I go to Peru to see my family. So I took to the team and they were like, I was like, is there any way I can compete? I've really put a lot of work into this. And they were like, well, we actually don't know. Um, maybe, yeah, okay. Let, let me, let me get back to you. And they go back to me like the day after saying, okay, if you're willing to travel to like a different regional, like we can get you in there and just don't worry about how it's going to work. Like we'll make it, we'll make something work. And I was like, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, so I travel all the way to Southampton. I presented my drink. Um, 
and I, and I, and I took first place. But the cool thing about what the brand team at the time did was they did not allow me to take a spot either from London or for the South. It was very fair on the way they did it. So they decided to put me as an additional London finalist. Then they put through two people of the South and then they still put people from London through as well. Oh, so like a wild card sort of. Yeah, think about it, kind of like a wild card. They were like, ah, like the London finals were a little bit after that. I was already going to be abroad. But when I came back, they said, yeah, even though that if you would have competed in London, you would have still made it through. Okay. Because your scores, you know, your scoring was higher. So yeah, that's, um, that's what happened. And then on the national finals, uh, I always have a saying that People from, when you watch like the X Factor, American Idol and stuff like that, it's usually the runner up that becomes a mm. bit more successful and famous. So I, I'm not saying that the rest of the competitors are not successful now. They've all gone and do amazing yeah. things, but I was the one that ended up working for Patron, um, as a full time job. And yeah, I'm pretty sure you, you have a few more Yeah, that, no, that was, that was my next question. Like, how was the, the, that, that edition of Patron Factions where, so you didn't win, but no, didn't. you ended up like, keeping a really good contact with the brand and then yeah. kind of like slowly, slowly you're working with them? Yeah, so basically what a good thing that Patron does and I still do that until today, I like to believe, hence why you and I are talking here. Yeah. Um, it's that they really know how to constantly keep engaging with the bartenders that are involved in the program. That maybe they will be part of the regional finals or the national finals or the winners, but... As part of like that year of Patron Perfection is national finalists, the brand asked me if I could stay uh, with them as a, I don't want to say consultant because it wasn't really consultancy, but if I could be part of the recruitment plan for the following mm. year. That meant a few different sessions uh, across some bar groups. I actually did one or two in LCC and it was just talks and like we were doing like a lot of like tequila talks and my experience throughout the competition, the brand support that I received, the education that I received, and it was really cool. Um, and I believe that at the time, the the ambassador at the time, Karine, she saw that, wow, I had like a really good understanding of what the category was. My passion for the brand was really good. Oh, I am Latin American, so culturally I was relevant for it. Um, but I had knowledge and passion for the category and the brand. And it was uh, along the same time that we were doing the sessions that she then found out she was pregnant. So she had the blessing of, 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 uh, be expecting a baby. And then she said to me, I'm, I'm obviously going to go on maternity and I need someone to cover me. Would you like to do it? And I was like, absolutely. I didn't even think it twice. It yeah, broke my heart living swift, uh, because it was a bar where I was growing, I was developing, I was loving it. There was nothing wrong with it. Yeah. But you were uh, living for tequila. But I wanted to, I always wanted to work for brands, but I was just waiting for the right brand. There were a few opportunities that I had before Patron, but they were never the right fit for me. And that's something that you see a lot in bartenders. You see them going for the first opportunity, first brand that comes to them just because they want to go to bars because Mm -hmm. it's tempting. But also the funny thing is that they think they're going to have like a normal nine to five life and a brand ambassador role is pretty much a 24 hour, seven days a week gig. Yeah. You represent the brand, right? Yeah, so you have to be almost on the call like at any yeah. time. So if you're in a bar and you misbehave, it doesn't matter if it's a weekday or a weekend, yeah, yeah. like you're still the brand ambassador. Doesn't matter if you're there for work reasons or for or for personal reasons, let's say at your friend's birthday or at your own birthday or whatever. Yeah. If you fuck up, you you 
you're still the brand ambassador. So it's a title that it comes with you 24-7. You're the connection between the brand and the industry. But anyway, going back to that, she kind of like said to me, uh, cool, we're going to meet the brand managers and whatnot. And we met them. They told me, yeah, cool. Like you, we like you. I think you're a good fit. Um, it's only a six month, six month contract though. I say, yeah, sure. And then I remember leaving the meeting and telling like Kareen, Kareen, like six months. I'm a bit nervous about that. And she's like, yeah, but look, if you show that you can do a really good job and that you, you you're learning fast and, 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 and if they like you, they will not let you go. They will maybe offer you something else, but yeah. like, you know, and then five years later, here we are. Yeah, yeah. Did you have like a backup plan sort of like maybe just go, I mean, back, the good go thing, back to Swift or something? If you, if you leave things in good terms with bars. Yeah. Mm, you're always welcome back. You're always welcome back. And this is what bartenders need to remember is that you know how to make drinks, then you will always have the opportunity of having a job. Uh, obviously, there are bars and there are bars. But that all depends on your network, your yeah. contacts, your reputation, what people think of you. And obviously, like, just the, the relationships that you have. Uh, but yeah, no, I didn't have a backup plan. I was, I don't want to say I was committed to stay, but I was focused to do as much of a good job and learn yeah, we, as much as I could. If you believe in, in it, to yeah. Stay. Yeah, in order to stay. But, you know, I never had a backup plan because worst case scenario, I just went back to bars. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And so then following that, uh, you all became the full-time brand ambassador for Patron? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And then long after, not long after that, COVID obviously hit. So that Yeah. How, how did you guys like go through that? I mean, when I say guys, more like you, obviously, because I don't know about the brand, but yeah, how did you manage to sort of like keep working for the brand through the pandemic? And uh, so I'm not going to lie, Bacardi was amazing uh, during COVID. Um, especially because a lot of people in my team were at the time self-employed, including myself. So we were like, right, that's it, right? They're obviously going to let us go. And no, they were like, obviously we're in the UK, so a lot of people went on furlough, but they were like, you guys are not going anywhere. Like, you're still going to keep your jobs, you're going to get paid, and we're going to find things for you to do. So there were two main things that we did during COVID. First, we digitalized the entire educational sessions that we have. We created new modules, which was great. So history, techniques, bar skills, cocktail families, loads of reading, loads of research was great, but we digitalized everything and then work with agencies to kind of like be able to deliver training and education through, through online sessions and then sending samples through the post. There was a massive, massive focus on consumer experience, which was great because we did a lot of tastings for consumers online. And then one thing that changed, and it's still different until today, it's that the way companies like Bacardi work is the on-trade and the off-trade, generally speaking, right? There might be a few departments in the middle. The on-trade is everything that is bars, restaurants, hotels, basically mm-hmm. where you consume the product in a cocktail or in a serve like we're doing now. And the off-trade is where you buy the entire bottle. So supermarkets, grocery, e-commerce, premium retail, so on. Uh, that area, obviously during COVID, increased its sales massively. So what happened then was that we were, we started working closer together with the people who focus on the off trade. So again, on consumers, on meetings with our customers, like let's say supermarkets and buyers, etc., doing tastings online. So yeah, we always kept ourselves busy, but Bacardi was super supportive and it was an amazing employer. Uh, during times of pandemic because it always gave people something to do 
Great. And it pushed us to be creative, to think outside of the box. But yeah. So you had time to like sort of think about the world after, especially maybe a new a new edition of Bottom Perfectionist. Like, did you did you work on that as well? And yeah, definitely. Obviously, that came into a little bit of a hold at the time, and then we decided to figure out how are we going to digitalize it, but always with the hope of bringing it back to life. Uh, so yeah, we simplify the context, the concept completely. We simplify the way we were doing um, the 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 rules of the competition, and then eventually uh, we kind of like simplify the entry challenge significantly. Yeah. So there were more rules and more limits. It needed to be more replicable and consumer friendly. We wanted to integrate consumers as well, which worked really well. Um, and then it was a perfect timing because through executing that. Then the world opened up a little bit more so we could do like low attendance events and small mm -hmm. little watch parties and events. Uh, but then we were still able to have a global final at the time. So it was really cool. Oh, nice. Oh, great. Okay, how do you like organize such like a big event like that? Well, let's say, I mean, I guess you're just taking care of the UK one. But how do you, is it something that you guys like planning like months in advance? Well, the way it works, it's that we have a global team that, um, gives us the structure needed. And then each local team can adapt that, following the same structure into their local needs. And that's depending on a lot of things. The budget you have, the targets that you have, your KPIs. And what happens then is that, in the case of the UK, um, I am the person in charge of the program, but I, that's, that doesn't mean that I work alone. I have the rest of, of mm -hmm. the ambassadors, um, from my line manager to the trade ambassadors that work with me. Uh, the sales team works with me, but then for the actual execution of the events, I work with an agency, um, which it's pretty much the planning, the payments, the, the, the entire logistic of it. Right. So yeah, we're very lucky to have the resources of being capable of working with agencies and, and partner up with cool people. Um, because one of the worst things is when you try to have the same person doing 25 different things, like you're an expert only on certain things. And you have two arms and two legs. Like, yeah. it's impossible to be able to do everything and run an event as a one-man band. You need support of your colleagues and you need support of agencies if you if you if you're capable. Well, of especially for a big machine like that. Yeah, no, of course. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to just to finish on Pattern Perfectionist, uh, how was the last edition you've done? So it was only like maybe three months ago, two months ago. Yeah, we had the finals in November, and I said before the announcement that. Look, every year of Patron Perfection is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like the year you did it, for example, it was really good. It was really, really tough um, because the standards were really high and everything. But collectively, as a whole, I think the this last edition of 2023, in the UK at least, it was the ones that I saw the highest standards collectively. Nice. We had people with incredibly good drinks, incredibly good presentations, real performers, And collectively as a group, it was amazing. Like if that, if those 10 bartenders worked in the same bar together, oh my God. Like you have, the, you, have the you have the best bar in the planet. Wow. Okay. Are you excited to, uh, to bring Nathan to, uh, the final? The yeah, final? yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think Nathan deserves it. Uh, I think he did a really good job and he's always keen to learn and develop. Like honestly, I've never met anyone that you give him feedback. He will say, okay, amazing. Thank you for the feedback. But then he'll use everything that you've said. Like, I've never seen anyone absorbing feedback it's, so well. It's a sponge, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And usually, like, within bartenders, not always, but in a lot of cases, there might be a little bit of ego here and then. So you give them feedback and, 
at the end of the day, what we do is subjective. So what you think it's a good drink, maybe I don't think it's a good drink and vice versa. So when you give feedback to some bartenders, they might be like, oh, well, I actually really liked it that how it was. So, well, well, you're asking for feedback, right? So like take the feedback. Yeah. Or sometimes it's okay not to take the feedback. If you actually think the feedback's not worth it or that you disagree with it or your personal preference is different, it's fine not to take it. But oh my God, Nathan just soaks it all up. And it's like an, a sponge of learning mm. and, and, and taking f- constructive feedback and growing from it. So it's going to be also your part of your job to guide him through the final, the global final. Yes, and, uh, yes. Yeah. I think um so I give him like even more feedback. I am I am I am uh a little bit certain that this year um I'm going to have a quite a few different things to do during the global finals like supporting the local team, supporting everyone else, but uh, ahead of the finals Nathan has a lot of my support for sure, yeah. Nice. But during there, this is the thing when, when we go to the global finals as ambassador, we're just not like cheerleaders for our finalists. We have a lot of things to do. Yeah, I guess. Um, it's a project that we just never stop working on. So yeah, I will obviously give him all of the support that I can, but he, he's going to be in good hands because there's going to be a really cool mentorship plan. Nice. Yeah. How are you gonna, um, I mean, I don't know if you can like share that because I know last year you, you brought uh, Max, I think, to, with the guys from Shapes to something like that. Like, yeah, well, so far, we don't know what the challenges are oh, yeah, for the global finals. Uh, they're in May, so next week we have uh, the brief. But I've already spoken to Nathan to start thinking what kind of education, work, educational workshops he wants, what kind of sessions he wants to work on. Um, but then, yeah, whatever he thinks is fit, depending on the challenges, he, we will support him in order to receive the, the appropriate training and mentorship. Great, great. Well, I hope to uh, interview him as well before he goes. I think that'd be great. He doesn't know yet, but he's, he's invited to the show. Awesome. Yeah, so let's maybe go back to Patron a little bit. So you actually, to speak about the most recent stuff that you've been doing, uh, I mean, brand-wise, you just launched a new tequila, right? The El Cielo. Correct. Actually, we launched in the UK in July, so relatively fairly recent. How, how, that, how that goes? I had the chance to actually try it. It's really good. Yeah. It's really good because it is really good. one thing that I love about working for Patron that it always combines things that you never think they're going to work together. So Patron's idea when it started was to embrace tradition, to make tequila in the traditional way, which was a method that at the time was starting to disappear and fade. Um, and it was about preserving traditional method of tequila production but making enough tequila that you could show the world that this is 100% agave tequila. So it's preserving tradition, but doing it the right way that you're replicating the method in order to have enough volume to show the global market, wow, this is what ultra-premium tequila is. But preserving tradition doesn't mean that you're not allowed to innovate. It's only about if you're allowed... It's only if you innovate the tequila industry whilst doing it in a traditional way. So Patron Cielo is the first tequila to be distilled four times. Now, what the secret is behind it is that you are using very, very small copper pot stills. So each distillation is creating loads of texture. Uh, but also, after the first and second distillation, your third and fourth happen in 500-liter pot stills. So it's super tiny um, and small jumps that they get combined with a little bit of water in order to fit the right proof so you're never really reaching a spirit that is going to be 
like 80%, 70% alcohol because that's when you start creating a very neutral tasting spirit. So the jumps are short, but you're just purifying, diluting, purifying, diluting, but preserving through, preserving the spirit within the, the, the legal regulation ABV, um, which is 35 to 55. And then what happens is that you end up with a tequila that it is cleaner. It doesn't taste as, as, funky and musty and heavy as a lot of tequilas in the market, uh, meaning that it's more approachable. It still preserves the flavor of cooked agave with not necessarily a lot of its herbaceousness, but that's not because it's badly made. It's because it's the the flavor profile that the master distiller wants to create on purpose. And then it is sweet without additives, so the texture and the sweetness is mainly through the distillation and mm. the preservation of sugars rather than the addition of additives, which is something very common in the industry nowadays. So it's additive-free, four times a still bottle, bottle at 40 ABV. Um, and it's a combination, actually, of about 85% Tahona, uh, roller mill, so more of the fruity, citrusy character rather than the funky, herbaceous, dry vegetal note that the Tahona gives you. But you still have a, a 15%, one five, so 15% Tahona. So you still have a bit of that her- herbal, vegetal backbone. Uh, it's a very well-balanced tequila, and it's fantastic by by itself, on the rocks, with a little orange wedge, if you like. Great, great to introduce people to drinking neat tequila, more of that like light, approachable. So more like a sipping tequila than... More, more like a sipping tequila, but more inviting, especially for people who are not used to drinking tequila by itself. Yeah, so think about, I guess, a tequila, but it's like just much smoother than... Definitely, than definitely smoother, definitely cleaner, softer and sweeter. It's balanced and it's delicious. It's delicious. I think it really showed that you are able to preserve tradition whilst embracing innovation at the same time. Yeah, one more thing about El Cielo. So I quite like the fact, so obviously it's a, it's a really premium tequila, right? Yeah. And I like the fact that Patron pretty much like built his own, like his whole, uh, reputation on premium tequila while everyone was doing, let's say, less premium tequila. But you guys like kept doing it until, until it was cool, right? And then that's how you actually stayed in the game for like yeah. so long. Yeah. Well, the idea of Patron happened when, during the 80s, so if we go a little bit into what the timeline of tequila is, you know, you got the 70s where, first you got the late 60s where a few new additives were introduced in small amounts. You you were able to add things into 100% agave tequila. Uh, but at the time, no one was calling it tequila 100% agave. Like, mm. it was just tequila because that's what the regulation called for. Then in the late 60s, you have the introduction of oak barrels in the production process, so you can now age it. And then in the early 70s, that amount of additives increases to, I think, something like 20%. Um, and then in 1974, the tequila appellation of origin is obtained. And that immediately put a lot of people on the spot because, yeah, it premiumized and it protected the spirit and it made it a very protected and exclusive category, but... At the same time, what happened is that if you, Ben, you had five distilleries and out of a sudden you're only allowed to produce in two of those five distilleries because they are within the Appalachian of origin, you're going to struggle. And at the same time, the struggle not, doesn't come because the regulation is a bad thing, if not the opposite. The regulation was an amazing thing. 
It was the best thing that could have happened to the category. But then what happened was that people were massively limited on the amount of places that they could produce it. So two years later, the, the government decides to create a new classification of tequila, or more than that, divide the category in two classifications. The first one is generic tequila, which was referred as just tequila, but what we call it in the industry is mixto, which said that a minimum of 50, 51% of agave sugars needed to be used for the production of your spirit, and the other 49 is going to be most likely a high fructose syrup, uh, sugars from an artificial source, or a cheaper sugar like grain, fruits, cane, um, or just industrially made sugar. And then they created the second classification, which was now called 100% agave tequila, 100% agave. So that means that 100% of the sugars used in the inoculation process, so in the fermentation, just before the fermentation, are coming from the agave, right? Pretty self-explanatory. And unfortunately, what happened is that because the demand was so high, mainly coming from the United States, all of the tequila that was being exported outside of Mexico was mixto. Uh, and back in the time, there was no such thing as a good mixto, which is something that you do actually see nowadays. Um, but when John Paul de Coria and a couple of business partners decided to create Tequila Patron, yes, they were from the United States, but they were appreciating what real tequila was all about. And... They were the idea behind it, but the actual creator of the recipe was a man called Francisco Alcaraz, who recently passed in 2020. Um, but he was our, one of our founders and the founding master distiller. So he had a unique recipe that combined two methods of extraction. And the idea behind Patron was, as I said before, to preserve traditional method. But the entire objective was to show the rest of the world, like, look, this is 100% agave tequila. And yes, it's going to be a little bit more expensive than your mixto, but it's okay to pay a little bit extra. Yeah. And also correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he had like sort of a chemistry degree or something like that. And, and that was not that common, uh, at this time. Yeah. Francisco was a, yeah, was and, a chemist uh, and he was at the time working in the industry for nearly 20 something years. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a very experienced guy. Um, he know what he knew what he was doing. And the entire idea of Patron when it started is, Let's make good tequila, 100% agave, traditionally made. It's a bit random, actually, because the guy just asked, like, a, like that guy, like, oh. Yeah, can, can Francisco was working at a different distillery at the time, so we had the facility to, to utilize the place he was working at. And then um, the entire objective was to put tequila out in a global map of what 100% agave was. Now, the challenging bit is that it's, been, it's the late 80s, early 90s, like, you didn't see the word sustainability in anything. No, of course, yeah. You kind of did no, before it was cool. Yeah, no one really cared if it was vegan, organic, gluten-free, sustainably and consciously made, you know. Everyone was just like, oh, if it's good, it's, it's, if it's good and cool, I'll, 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 I'll get it. Um, and that was the beauty of Patron. I'm not being biased, but I said that it's thanks to Patron that the world understood what 100% agave and traditionally made tequila was. And in that way, Patron is the responsible brand of putting ultra premium tequila in the world map. I'm not talking about Mexico. I'm talking about the global mm. map. Uh, that is why nowadays we're putting a lot of our resources in Mexico because we want to remind everyone and we want to, we want to make sure that everyone knows that we are a Mexican brand. We are 
like we have a saying, orgullosamente mexicano, right? So we are proud to be Mexicans. Our recipe and our strategy was created by a Mexican man, Francisco Alcaraz, um, in partnership with very, very clever people that showcase that replication of small batches is the way to challenge that idea and mindset that you, if you want to be a craft artisanal brand, you need to make small volumes. This was the great way of showing like, no, you can make a lot of product, a lot of tequila in this case. But if you are just replicating small batches and doing everything by hand in an artisanal way, you can make as much tequila as you please. At the end of the day, you just have you just, to multiply the people. Exactly. Yeah. Multiply. The, well, you need to have the space. You need to be willing to invest in equipment. You need to have space for the equipment. But our, as you mentioned just now, our most important thing is the people. So we hire, we employ just in the distillery, something just under 3,000 people. Wow. Making us the tequila distillery in Mexico that employs more people than anyone else. That is significantly more than, I mean, if you compare the most industrial tequila distillery versus Patron, the most industrial tequila distillery, yeah, they might do a significant amount of tequila, significantly higher amount of tequila than we do. But they hire maybe 20 people, 50 people, because it's all made by machines. Yeah, yeah. What we do is that we do everything by hand. So 3,000 people, roughly, get hired by Patron to work in the distillery every day. Uh, and that's a beautiful part of it. It's that our process is actually 100% made by hand. And all in one place as well at the all Hacienda, right? All in one right? place, yeah. We have a replica of the Hacienda just behind it, which is called Rosa de Castilla, which is an expansion of the same building. It's recently started to operate. Um, and next to the Hacienda, we also have a small building that makes uh, only roller mill process. Right. Um, so that that's what we used to combine with the Tajona that is made at the Hacienda. But at the Hacienda, we do everything. And we are one of... I think it's something around 20 distilleries nowadays uh, that are making a single brand in a single distillery. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is a very interesting thing in the industry because at the moment, I think there's something about 4,000 brands available in the world. Yeah, Yet you only have about 200, 180 distilleries operating. So the number is significantly, drastically different. Yeah, I was about to say actually that, that now that I think the market in UK, but even worldwide has changed a lot and now there's actually quite a lot of like new tequila brands like coming yeah. up. It's this kind of saturated at the moment. Yeah, this is a problem. Anyone can have their own tequila. Why? There is a practice called tequila in maquila, which is when a distillery will produce tequila for other people. That can be a private buyer. It can be another company. It can be a, like, an association or just a regular guy or lady. Like right? a dark distillery sort, sort of. Okay, yeah. And there are a few different case scenarios. Tequila and maquila means that you're producing tequila for others. Right. And the case scenarios are multiple. You can have a, a distillery that is owned by one company, but that company owns, let's say, five tequilas. And they're producing five tequilas in that distillery. But that's not a big issue because they will be produced in a different way. They will be using different production methods. They will be using different uh, um, finishing methods, distillation and whatnot, depending on, on the price point, right? Let's say a company has three tequilas, a very cheap mixto, a relatively approachable one, and a super ultra premium tequila. They're all made in the same distillery. Now, the other issue... It's when you have a distillery that makes 100, 130, 140 
200 brands, let's say. And a lot of people, when I say this to them, they think I'm exaggerating. But the reality is that that is what's happening for a lot of, in a lot of distilleries. A lot of distilleries across Mexico will do an unbelievable amount of bulk liquid. Like we're talking about millions of liter in one go. This tequila is not going to be of the best quality. It's not going to be of the best uh, mature agave. It's no. not going to be made with care and attention. It's going to be as fast and cheap as possible. But then this distillery, at the end of the day, is going to sell whatever the people want, the, whatever amount of liquid people want to buy to private buyer number one, private buyer number two, private buyer number three, and so on. And there's a very easy way of understanding this. There's the NOM, which is a number that every tequila brand has, uh, which identifies the number of your distillery rather than the brand. So the NOM doesn't mean the name of the brand, the number of a brand is like what I like to call the postcode of your distillery. Yeah. That way you can track back where is this tequila being made. And there are amazing tools, like for example, Tequila Matchmaker, um, which is not a dating app, even though that it sounds like one. It does, yeah. Uh, that you can trace where are certain tequilas being made, right? So next time you have someone coming to your bar and saying, hey, you should try my tequila. It's new to, let's say, the UK. Um, right, what, what, what's so special about it? Oh my God, it's a unique tequila. It's new, uh, this and that. And then just check the norm, put it on the, on the website, Google it, and you'll see what else is being made out there. As I said, there's about 4,000 brands, but only about 20 of those being made in a single distillery. And Patron is one of them. Oh, so it could be like, you can have like four different brands and then it will come actually from the same, same battery, the same vat. I have been told by people who I'm not going to name, but these people are, experts and they live in Mexico, they make tequila. Yeah, I know cases of distilleries that will bottle the exact same liquid, but at the end of the day, the private buyer doesn't care about that. So when you think about why is tequila becoming so popular among celebrities, among, amongst people with the, the, the resources and enough money to build their own brands, is because as long as you have someone making the liquid for you, then if you have a cool bottle design, a cool marketing team, yeah. and you have a big, big celebrity behind it, you are then capable of having a successful brand because we live in a society where at the end of the day, people will listen more to what a football player or, or musician model, will yeah. say rather than what a spirits expert will say. And it's a shame because it is... It is opening the world of tequila for people, but not giving them the right liquid. Not in all cases, okay? I'm not talking about any cases, and I'm not giving any examples for that reason. Um, but on the other side, it is it is a, a, a positive thing that celebrities are getting involved in tequila, but mainly because it's getting more people interested in the category. Okay. So that it will be the only positive thing. I think and then it's our are... job to... It's our job after that to... I think to do the right thing. It's also dangerous for the locals because obviously like if like a, a celebrity coming and say, I'm going to buy your tequila and they say, I can't put that much money. And then that, that uh, tequila maker will just sort of like up their price because they know one celebrity or something like that will just buy the tequila and they kind of like put all the prices up and then like the smaller distiller next door or whatever won't be able to 
to find clients because like the guy with the bigger vat can just like sell his tequila for more expensive. Well, it is it is a little bit like that, but not really because whatever the producer is charging to the private buyer to make the tequila, it's up to them. It's up to their agreement. One thing that is not going to change is the agave price, the price of the agave. Yeah. So based on the price of the agave, then you can decide how much you're selling your brand for. And agave price fluctuates drastically. Like if I show you charts of how it's changed in the last 20 years, there's times that it goes really, really expensive and times that it's so cheap that like it's pretty much free. Right? Oh, yeah? Yeah, per kilo. Um, but yeah, it's also like very, very small, tiny little distilleries are not making tequila for anyone else. Let's put it that way. Right? Yeah, they're just for the locals. For, they're, make, they're making tequila for a purpose. They're making tequila for small, small, small um, traditionally made batches. They're making tequila for personal consumption. They're making tequila for for their own little brand that they distribute somewhere with with the help of a company, maybe. Right? Right. So, yeah, it's not really... I don't really see it associated with a massive danger. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I have to find out more about that. Do you think it's more like a trend and it's going to sort of like die off a bit or? Um, no. What, what is a trend? Like all the celebrities like doing their own tequila. Uh, yes, I think that, yeah, but tequila is not a trend. I no, of course not. But... Tequila, tequila is deeply rooted into culture and it's something that we need to learn how to appreciate. Um, Significantly, obviously, significantly in Latin America, it's something that is appreciated. But when it comes to the Western world wanting to own and appreciate tequila, I think it's, we're moving in the right direction for sure. But there's still a lot of work to do. What about in the UK? What do you think of, of the actual agave scene and, and in the, the market? In the UK, that- it's significantly growing. It's significantly growing thanks to brands like us, amongst others, that we're doing a really good job. Because ultimately what what people do, especially since the pandemic, people listen to the bartender significantly more. So what we're doing with Patron is that we really try to build a team of advocates that can represent our brand while still working at their bars. And I'm not saying we're the only ones. There's a lot of other amazing brands doing that and they have really good liquid and good good relationship with the industry um but we're putting our attention in that because yeah we are the fastest growing category in the uk but there's still a long way to go no yeah definitely you know there's still a long way to go um you work in a bar where even though that is the kind of bar where you want to go have people come in and and, and asking for a, a tequila and trying need tequilas like you guys do tequila flights yeah what is your sales of tequila flights versus cocktails oh like one two hundred probably right you probably. sell one Even tequila flight for about a hundred cocktails oh actually maybe right. maybe less than that but yes it's like you get my point right? yeah really low you but get my point. so you know i don't want to turn myself into the interview into the interviewer i want to yeah yeah it's your podcast but this is the interesting thing. It's cocktails are the first way to introduce people into tequila. Definitely. I'm not saying it's the best way of drinking it. At the end of the day, the best way of drinking it is however you want to drink it. Now, we are in the UK 
obviously based in London, but the UK in general is a pioneer for cocktail leadership. It's a, it's a country that it's always leading in the cocktail scene. So it's not, it's, it's not a coincidence. It's a very natural thing that cocktails are the entry point for a lot of consumers into the tequila world. Once we nail that, we can start focusing in. Well, for any category, I think, I mean, well, yeah, gin for sure. Not a lot of people just drink gin like needs. No. Whiskey and rum a bit more, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that bars sell way more whiskey and rum cocktails than, yeah. than pure whiskey and rum. Yeah. And same for every, like, every other spirit. Yeah. But it's also like we need to understand, like, people's drinks of choice in Mexico is a tequila and a cold beer. Yeah, that's true. Like a, a tequila glass or a caballito, which is like a little shot with a bit more like 50 ml shot, like long, like that long shot, uh, with a cold beer. Yeah, like a chaser. You know what I mean? But it's, it's more like a cultural thing. Like that. Exactly. No one really do that. Yeah. Exactly. But I equally, I wonder how many people in the UK go and order for boilermakers. Unless you're a bartender, who else is doing that? That's true. You know what I mean? So... It's not that it's not a problem with the spirit. It's just a problem that people here don't really drink a neat spirit with a beer. Yeah. You go to Mexico, you go to Peru even, and you see people drinking a spirit neat with something refreshing on the side, like a beer or or something like that, you know? So what I love about tequila is that it's adaptable. It can adapt to whichever market it is. So here, cocktails is definitely the way forward when in the United States, they're appreciating it more neat or in the Mexican way, tequila and chaser, tequila, tequila and beer side by side. Um, when in other places, it might be a completely different way, like spritzes and, you know. And have you thought like, because UK is obviously like a, a land of beers, have you thought about like trying to push that pairing of of tequila and beer especially when you can mix the different sort of beer and sort of tequila so like añejo with a guinness for example or a stout and and like a silver with a really light beer and like a reposado with a pale ale or session api or something to sort of bring back the the consumers to the way to drink tequila doesn't have to be that way but can also be as a chaser with with a beer I think it's a really good idea. I think no one really is doing that in the UK. And it'll be very interesting to see how the consumer ultimately reacts to it and if it becomes a trend or a success. Um, I think it's a pretty good idea. I think it could work, but the thing is, it works on paper, but I don't see a lot of people just um, ordering a beer and tequila. But no, definitely as a... If, if, if a bar or a bartender is pushing it, how many times do you work in a bar saying, hey, so what are you guys known for? What do you recommend? So, well, we've got a really good selection of beers and a really good selection of tequilas. So you can choose. If you, if, you, if you tell me a little bit of the kind of flavor profiles that you like, I can give you a really nice cold beer next to a really nice tequila that is paired perfectly for it. Ultimately, what bartenders need to remember is that they are decision makers on what people are drinking like in all the years I work in bars I don't think I went through a single day where at least three people didn't ask me what do you recommend yeah, it sells isn't it you just as soon as they ask you what do you recommend yeah remember or, like, what shall I have next 
that is your door to do whatever you want. Yeah, it's just the way you, the way you sell it. You can pretty much sell everything, especially mm-hmm. if like if if you're confident with what you're selling. Yeah. What would you uh, What would you pair um, the different patrons with? What sort of beer, for example? Definitely silver with a nice crisp, cold, like light yeah. blonde beer. Um, this is completely outside of Patron's drink strategy, by the way. So, a little uh, message for my team if you ever hear this. It's uh, completely <laughs> subjective and personal preference. No, this is like in, in, a, in another world, maybe, like in a. Reposado, definitely with something tropical, like a tropical IPA, um, tropical pale ale, something really nice and fruity and, and, and with a little bit of bitterness. And you know what? The Añejo, I'll pair it with, with like a nice red ale. It's oh, nice. still cold. I think I will never pair it with something like a stout or like a Guinness or like a... That'd be heavy. Yeah, you want something light and crisp next to the complexity of a tequila. Tequila should remind you of fresh, relaxed moments. Um, you know, casual hanging out, moments of, 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 of relaxation, good company and freshness and the sun and the beach and, and good times really, man. It shouldn't really be something intense and heavy and oh my God, it's stress, you know? It should be something cool and chilled and relaxed. It's funny how Alan said the same at the previous episode. Like it's something quite common with agave spirit. Yeah, it's like it's it's meant to just be drinking, like with friends and like with a ch- like a chill environment and to have a good time all together. Yeah, I mean, I will always remember the time that I drank tequila with someone, and I will always remember the tequila that I was drinking. If I have a good time with someone and I'm having a nice conversation and a nice chat and a nice experience and we're drinking specific type of tequila, I will always remember that. I will always remember the story of being like, wow, yeah, we remember we were drinking a bottle of Patron Añejo and we were enjoying it and we were having a laugh and we stayed talking for hours over tequila and good times and good conversations. So, yeah, it's all about the people at the end of the day. It's all about the people. It's all about who you share it with. And yeah, I mean, I've learned something throughout the years that tequila is a kind of drink that actually wants to be drank. When you open a bottle of tequila, the liquid actually starts changing, starts oxidizing compared to other spirits because tequila wants to be shared, wants to be enjoyed. It's not like other spirits that you can just leave them forever in your cupboard and 20 years later, it'll be great. They want to be they want to be sipped, you know? Okay, I think we can now move on to your recommendations. Or maybe anything any, anything cool happening in 2024 for like you, your patron, or or anything that you're excited about that's coming up? Uh, well, yeah, I'm excited for the industry. I think it's uh, London has been quite quiet for a few years in terms of openings, and you have a few new really cool spots opening in this new year. Um I think there is a significant growth in the agave category and it's growing and growing. So I'm really looking forward to see how that, how that kind of like evolves and develops. Um, but not only across the UK, across Europe in general, I want to see the change on the, on the tequila market. Uh, so I'm excited to constantly innovating new challenges, new adventures and new people and new moments. Um, but yeah, 
Looking forward to new bars opening with a new offering of spirits, of cocktails, of hospitality. Um, and when it comes to Patron, maybe, as I said before, a few little exciting things happening, new projects, but 2024, we'll see hopefully new exciting things coming from. So it sounds like a nice year for, for yeah. you guys. Nice. Great. Always positive, man. Always. <laughs> Always. Do you have any recommendations, either, either Agave or, mm -hmm. I mean, it can be anything really, any bars or, or even outside of Stility, any, anything you want to recommend to people? Ask me more precisely, what do I recommend? Okay, um, so, what, so let's do, do one, I... let, let's do one, um, Agave forward. That is not Patron. So I don't know, any, any Agave bar that you like to go or like a new opening that you're thinking of? Uh, or even just a bartender that you're expecting to see what, what, what he's gonna do or she's gonna do this year? Yeah, definitely. So I think when it comes to London, Agave focused bars have to be Acha. Not because you're here, uh, but I really mean it. You have good, good agave selection. Acha, side hustle, viajante. Yeah, full stop. Great. Uh, Satan's Whiskers also has a really good selection of agave spirits. That's true. They have a lot of really cool Patron spirits. Uh, and despite being a little bit more limited, Silverleaf also has quite a, a few interesting bottlings on their bag bar. Um, Yeah, that will be the bars any, in London, I think. Any Peruvian place actually in London that you welcome and for food? Yeah, or, or for drinks, but yeah, anything. Uh, yes, there is a place called Tito's, which was the first Peruvian restaurant in London, which is amazing. It's delicious. Uh, there is one in Essex Road in Islington called Tierra Andina, which is pretty good. Um, and then if you want something a bit more fancy, Floral by Lima is Virgilio Martinez, so who's the chef from Central. Uh, and yeah, those Great. would be the ones that I would recommend for sure. Well, Gianluca, thank you for being with us for that hour or so. That was really interesting. Absolute pleasure, man. And uh, yeah, we wish you all the luck for you and Patron, and I'm sure we're going like, to talk again soon. Sounds and, uh, good. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for having me, man. It's been a, it's a, been pleasure. a lot of fun. Cheers, Appreciate mate. It. Thank Thanks. you.